Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Gotta love that sitar music. Just let it play for a minute longer. Mm. Alright, what's up guys? Welcome. Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Just one tongue today. Uh, apologies you guys um, for Sunday's episode. Uh, we missed one. <laughs> First one in over five months of recording. So I know you guys are used to getting two a week and you are getting one this week. Um, so apologies, but we had stuff going on. Um, and it happens. You'll be happy to know we're we're not going to talk about Jordan Peterson today, or at least not uh, at least not much. Um, what I said uh, a few podcasts back talking to Kyle was having finished up Maps of Meaning. One of the things I wanted to do was to get into Plato. Uh, you guys might may remember the reason I said that was because so many important you know philosophers and thinkers over the years have said you know, really high things about, really high praise about Plato, including that all other philosophers uh, have been a footnote to Plato, as though everything that was worth saying or every argument worth having or every, you know, uh, attempt at answering these unanswerable questions that philosophy tries to, that Plato had all of that worked out. Um, he set the, the groundwork for everyone who came after him. So I'm like, okay, let's do that. Let's let's get into that. And uh, I found out really quickly that I was getting ahead of myself. So maybe maybe more ahead of myself than I thought, actually. And he, so here's what I mean: in order for me to understand what Plato had to say, I needed to go back and figure out kind of what information Plato had access to and the thinkers that came before him. And here's the thing, guys: those people go way back way back to before things were written down, at least um, at least beyond cultural things like the Iliad and the Odyssey that, you know, that were obviously written down. But even those were told, um, you know, from person to person orally for, for God knows how long before it was written down. Point is, there's not a lot written down prior to, prior to Plato, at least not that survives. And I'm really, I'm talking about Greece primarily because that's where Plato was from, but um, but I found that there are a lot of people that we know about that were philosophers. They kind of get lumped all together, and they call them pre-Socratic philosophers because they came before Socrates, and if you guys know anything about Plato, you know that he wrote, uh, everything he wrote really, was uh, dialogues. So they were stories, like kind of like plays, you might you might imagine, um, starring Socrates. So Plato never actually said anything um, f- 
from his mouth, from his own mouth, um, at least in the works that survive, all of the words that Plato says, they come through the mouthpiece of Socrates in these stories, and Socrates was Plato's teacher, obviously. So, um, so it's interesting, but what I found was that there's a lot of those guys. A lot of the names you would, you would recognize, you know, uh, uh, I mean, we'll talk about them, but there are a bunch that you would recognize. And what I found was that, interesting going through this research is that so many of those people... Um, that were famous, that all of these, you know, um, all of these really important historical characters, um, you know, uh, uh, the Greek historians and philosophers, let's say, uh, and the Romans, for that matter, that they speak about these books that were written by these pre-Socratic philosophers. And so many of those books have been lost. So it's like we knew that they were written. We have little bits here and there about what people said about them. And they were talking about them for hundreds of years. And at some point, they just went away. So we don't have any evidence of them. In some instances, we, we have little fragments. We have little bits and pieces that we can collect, like, oh, you know, Plato said this or Aristotle said this about a book that no longer exists anymore. And that's kind of all we have to go on. But here's the thing. I started reading that stuff, and what I found was that there is a tremendous amount. And not only am I not going to be able to get to everything that's interesting today, um, I've had a really hard time trying to figure out where to stop and where to start on this one. You'll see what I mean. It's interesting. But what I kind of what I kind of felt like as I was going through this was that this episode was not going to be as much about Plato and uh, and you know early Greek philosophy. It's not going to be about that. In fact, it's going to be much more like some of the earlier episodes we did, where we we looked at different types of um, prophets or religious characters, and we and we read their holy books, and we talked about the things in them that were really mystical, that weren't like what you, yeah, you know, what you hear when somebody tells you about those religions. They're like the obscure stuff that nobody ever talks about. But when you read it, you're like, what does that mean? And some of it is very mystical, and so much of it has to do with all of my favorite subjects, which is those questions that have always seemed like the most important to me. Um, what the heck exactly am I? Where did I come from? What exactly is the cosmos? And where did the cosmos come from? And those are the kind of questions that these pre-Socratic philosophers were trying to answer. And what's so fascinating about that is that when you're, is that when the questions that you're focusing on are questions of origins and creation, then it becomes a religious conversation. And so these people were philosophers that were, you know, they were religious. I mean, obviously, we're talking about the 5th century BC. Everybody was religious. Um, but they were tackling the religious questions in a different way in this in this philosophia, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, is Greek means love of wisdom. So it's like, what can human beings uh, bring to the table when we're trying to answer these questions? Not... What are the revelations that we got from these prophets or, you know, whatever? So we're going to take a crack at this ourselves. Um, so really interesting. And there's so much, there's way, way too much. Um, and I was really surprised to see that. But a lot of this is tied to something I brought up in an earlier podcast that I want to talk about because of the timing. All right, so everything that I've, um, everything that I've read up to this point to come up with these, uh, with these notes came from a couple of places. Most of these you can find on sacredtext.com, which I've talked to you guys about many times. 
Um, first one is called Ancilla to the Pre-Socratic Philosophers, and it was translated by a lady named Kathleen Freeman in 1948. It's not; uh, it's a public domain book, so you have access to it. The others are also public domain. They're um, the works by Hesiod, and Hesiod is this ancient Greek, um, I don't know if you'd call him a philosopher or a historian or what you would call him exactly. Um, he's kind of like the precursor to the to Hesiod, which is like the actual, or Herodotus rather, which is actual like the first recognized historian. But after Homer, and Homer obviously is writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, you know, to the Greeks, the the Homeric poems are like, you know, the books of Moses to the to the Jews. Like this is the earliest written down uh, book of their religious beliefs. And there's two of them that Hesiod wrote. One of them is called Theogony, which is about the birth of the gods. The other one's called Works and Days. And both of these are available on sacredtext.com. There's a translation from 1914 by a guy named Hugh Evelyn White. Both of them are available there. So I read those. And then a book called Early Greek Philosophy, which is not on there. Uh, You guys have to go out and buy it if you want it. Um, Published in the 80s by a guy named Jonathan Barnes, who's a classics professor. And then uh, lastly, there's a book called, um, uh, well, it's called Library. It's by uh, a Greek named Apollodorus, and um, I, I actually bought it at the bookstore at, at college. In college, so it's one of those things that's often used as a textbook if you're if you're studying the, the classics or if you're studying Greek or something. But these are all the books that I've been referencing today, and I'll talk about them a little bit. But uh, this is where all these stories come from, where all these fragments and clips come from. Everything that we have from these pre-Socratic philosophers, everything that we have left, everything that survived, and most of it is just a sentence here and there from somebody else that somebody wrote down from these books that have disappeared. So that's kind of interesting all by itself, that you've got these amazingly influential, powerful books that survived for hundreds of years that influenced all of these great thinkers and philosophers, and they're gone. They're gone. You can't find them anymore. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a period of time, um, I don't know if this corresponds to the Dark Ages, but maybe it does, in Europe, uh, where where a lot of the classics were not being read anymore. Um, I don't know, man, if, if that was like primarily because uh, Christianity had got more popular and the Bible was sort of like the only book, you might say, at least the only book that mattered. And some of these ancient Greek stuff kind of fell off, uh, fell off the face of the earth, and it survived... A lot of them, especially Aristotle, survived in um, Arabic. So I don't know if you guys know that, but so many of these classical Western books of philosophy and science, the early stuff, that would have literally disappeared off the face of the earth if it weren't for the for the Muslims in uh, Arabia at that time, because it was like high culture for them at the time. Um, and all of these great works of uh, math and science that come out of Arabia... Um, or at least the Arabic-speaking world, um, there was a tremendous amount. I'm not going to, that's a whole other podcast, we're not going to talk about that today, but um, there was a time when that part of the world was the absolute height of civilization and, and knowledge. And they're the ones that preserved all those important works from Greek philosophy. Um, So many of them, we literally had to translate back from the you know from the Arabic into the Greek and, and so that we could have it again. So interesting stuff. Uh, but here we go. Let's just let's just get into this. So I, I mentioned earlier that 
all of this early philosophy, this pre-Socratic philosophy, and you can see in it the beginnings of all the rationalism and the, you know, even the beginnings of science, which kind of Aristotle sort of breaks that and runs with that. But you can see all the beginnings of that stuff in these pre-Socratic philosophers. And because the questions they're asking are, are religious questions, um, there's just some really interesting, like, crossover between this like emerging scientific perspective and this old-fashioned you know religious perspective um and i think that's super interesting and uh like i said like i said the time and when this was happening um these pre-socratic philosophers most of them lived around the sixth century bc or the fifth century bc and i i brought up earlier when we talked about like all of these western religions you know the um um uh, the the, the um, Confucius and the uh, Zora or the um, um, the Taoists I should say uh, it is Zoroaster actually in Persia the prophet there um, that started the religion Zoroastrianism um, we talked about that one of the fir- the first you know a religion that's influenced Judaism and Christianity more than anybody recognizes publicly it's it's amazing but all of these people uh, Buddha. Uh, which was uh, the Prince Siddhartha, Confucius, Lao Tzu from China, Zoroaster from Persia, and Socrates for that matter. All of these people, and including some of the more mystic branches of Hinduism, um, all of those people existed right around that same time, from the 4th to maybe the 7th century BCE. So you have a couple hundred years where all of these people were living. And we talked about that before, but we didn't mention any of these pre-Socratic people, um, and there's a bunch of them. So you guys may have heard this phrase that there's a, a group of philosophers that when we look back at these pre-Socratics at the really earliest historical period, um, they call them the seven sages. And you, you hear some of that in China as well, where they have, you know, Confucius and Lao Tzu and some others that they kind of group together as these important like wise sages from history that that were important for the culture and for the people and and for the beliefs and that would develop from from them so this is no different in Greece they they refer to them as the seven sages and there's a bunch of them um one of them that you might recognize is um uh, Thales of Miletus um Thales is i remember learning about him in uh in college, I read the very first science class I had to take in college, and they kind of started way back because he was like, again, one of the earliest sort of scientific thinkers, Thales. He's also the guy that said, uh, know thyself, which is uh, something we talked about before, but it was literally carved into the doorway of the temple of Apollo at Delphi. So the people that were going to Delphi to, to get an oracle, to hear, hear their future, let's say, from the oracle, uh, that they had to pass underneath the threshold with this carving, know thyself. And that's the dictum of Thales. He said, again, one of these earliest philosophers who said, look, if, you, if, you're, asking, you're, if you're asking any question, if you're seeking for anything in your life, the, the, the most important thing for you to search, to know, is yourself. Know thyself. Um, and we'll talk more about that. I think that's super interesting. And there's some others, uh, other things like that as well. The thing about these sages is there really weren't seven of them, and nobody can really agree on on who should be considered the seven sages. Um, there's some consensus, but not not entirely. Some lists ten or twelve sages, so there's like uh, some folks that get swapped in and out of this list. Not that that's important, but 
There's a few that were universally agreed upon, Thales, Bias, uh, Pittacus, and Solon. All of those people generally are, are included. Um, and there's a bunch of others. Uh, and by the way, these Greek names are very difficult for me, so I'll do my absolute best. But uh, a couple of other names that I've never heard of, uh, Cleobulus, uh, my son, and uh, uh, Chilion. Uh, those were part of uh, the list that Plato mentioned, and then Protagoras as well. But anyway, whether there's 7, 10, 12, or, or, or you know, really makes no difference, the point is there was a whole bunch of people before Socrates that not a lot has survived from that made a big impact on people like Socrates and Plato and the rest of the Western tradition. So what the heck do we know about these people? What did they say? Um, and, the, and the truth is, they said a lot of mystical things. Um, uh, let's see here. Oh, uh, uh, before I move on, apart from know thyself, there's another saying attributed to the sages, which is nothing too much. Um, you guys may remember the golden mean, which is, I think, come, comes from Aristotle, uh, but we've all heard that growing up. Um, everything in moderation. That's, that's probably something that, that maybe rings a, a, more of a bell for you. So nothing too much. You know, everything in moderation. That and know thyself. Those were two very famous phrases that come from these sages. The first one, the first one that comes up, the earliest one, let's say, historically, is a guy named Orpheus. Now, we did talk about Orpheus before um, when we were talking about the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. If you guys don't remember, I was making a connection between the story in the Bible about uh, Lot and his wife during Sodom and Gomorrah when God decides he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells uh, Lot that he should leave and take his family and uh, that nobody should look back at the city. And Lot's wife turned and looked back at the city and was turned into a pillar of salt. If you guys remember that, it's actually similar in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, where Orpheus goes down into the underworld to save um, his love, Eurydice. And uh, he's, able to, he's able to actually get her from the underworld and successfully bring her back to, to the living, which is something that generally doesn't happen. Um, but same thing happens with Orpheus. So, so he looks back at Eurydice just to make sure that she's following him right before they get to the entrance of the mortal realm. And he was told not to do that. So as soon as he turns back and looks at Eurydice, she turns to stone, I believe. I can't remember the details, or salt or something, but similar to the story of Lot. So that's some that's something that we did talk about with Orpheus before, so you may be familiar at least with that part of it. What you may not know, a couple things. First of all, Orpheus is associated with these Orphic mysteries, and they go back a long way. We talked about the mystery religions a lot already. We talked about the fact that Christianity was considered a mystery religion when it in the first century Roman Empire because of its being secretive because it was people were persecuted as Christians and they did all of their rites in private but also because their rites had to do with conquering death and eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the gods and that was all consistent with other mystery religions that existed at the time so there was we talked about before but there was Mithra was another one of these mystery religions and that comes from Persia and then you've got uh, the um, the mysteries of Isis and Osiris from Egypt. Um, so you can kind of see that there's these foreign cults, you might say, these secret cults from Persia or from Egypt that are sort of still kind of carried on underground in, in places like Greece, far from where they originated. 
And uh, Orpheus was the was sort of a Greek version of this. And it, it goes way, way back. And it was a mystery religion. It had to do with, again, secret rites, and only the initiates could, could, could know the secrets and all that sort of thing. And it had some deep, powerful religious significance that has kind of been forgotten, along with the rest of the mystery religions. Um, but also... If, if you look up Orpheus on, you know, if you Google him, let's say, what you're going to hear is that he was considered by the Greeks to be the person who mastered music and poetry. He, he could play the lyre, you know, which was that Greek sort of, you know, angelic instrument, let's say, that that, that uh, was something that he mastered and he could play it beautifully. And, he, and the poetry back then was usually sung along with these songs and it was it, it, the narrative of the poetry was history or religion or something important and it would be it would be played you know and sung uh just like we sing hymns you know in church today orpheus was also considered to be a prophet so he could he could sort of speak the future um and there's so much of that stuff that surrounds him the religion the fact that he was considered a prophet uh all that stuff is um it's 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 mythological it's something that there's no consensus as to whether it's historical or whether this is just a story. And the reason I tell you that, and we'll get to it here, but there's, there's also a fictional story. You know, I don't know if I can even say fictional. We're talking, about, we're talking about myth here. But you guys may know the story of Jason and the Argonauts. And, and Jason and the Argonauts go to find the Golden Fleece. They're on this journey to find the Golden Fleece. And that's been a, a popular uh, ancient Greek myth. Well, Orpheus was supposed to have been there with Jason and the Argonauts. He was supposed to be. He was supposed to be part of the, part of their team. Um, so these are all the things that you'd read about uh, of Orpheus if you look it up. Here's some things you may not know. Um, th- what little survives about Orpheus, and there's not very much, are some references to, to the fact that he was from Thrace. So there does. Tend, seem to be some historical evidence of where he was from and that he lived before Homer. So he goes, he goes way back. And Aristotle didn't believe that he was a, a historical person. Aristotle thought he, he's just a story. He never actually existed. Um, and it's funny because you have the same argument about people like Moses or even Jesus where people argue today, you know, 2,000 years or 4,000 years down the road, whether or not that person ever actually existed. And it may just be a similar situation with Aristotle, that all these stories built up around him, and so, so many of them are so fantastic, like the Argonaut story, let's say, that you have to kind of ask, how many of these stories are made up around this guy? Um, and if they're all made up, you know, maybe this guy never existed. And, you know, fair enough. I mean, you could ask that question. Um, but it seems to me that that Moses, uh, Jesus, and Orpheus, uh, whether or not all of the stories that we tell about them are genuine and authentic and real, that those that, that those people did exist at one point historically, so that those stories could be attached to them. That's what that's what I believe, um, and I think that's the boat Aristotle was in, where he was questioning whether this guy was ever actually even existed. And there's really nothing known about those ancient Orphic writings. Um, Basically nothing that, that survived. It was believed that uh, Orpheus taught uh, but left no writings and that his epic poet, poetry that, that's attributed to him may have actually been written by somebody else, somebody named uh, 
Onomacritus in the 6th century. So Orpheus lived you know, much earlier than that, and maybe part of what was written it was attributed to him wasn't actually written by him. And again, that's the same thing we see with, with the books of Moses, let's say. Uh, we call them, you know, Genesis, the first book of Moses, but there's no evidence that Moses, that there was a one guy that wrote that book or, or, the, other, or the other books in the five books of Moses. So, and, you know, and even the Gospels that were written much later that were attributed to, um, to some of the followers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Thomas, whatever it is, that there's really no evidence that those people actually wrote the books, even though they're attributed to them. And so that wasn't an uncommon thing. You get some important book, um, you want it to have prestige, so you attribute it to somebody great and famous from antiquity um, to give it credibility. That, that happened all the time. But really nothing is known about them. That's interesting. And the Orphic literature current in the time of the Neoplatonists, which is about the 3rd century AD, it says is now thought to be a collection of writings of, of different periods uh, dating from the 6th century, so all the way up to the Christian era, actually. So there's a lot of stuff there that really ha- it has no connection to Orpheus whatsoever, but was just sort of written into this to this great person from history. Well, there's a lot of uh, stuff attributed to him that maybe isn't isn't legitimate. Um, but here's the thing: there's a there's a number of um, tombs that have these sometimes gold plates, but they have these they have these inscriptions. Um, and they're Orphic inscri- in inscriptions. So we actually do have these, you know, you can imagine, like in Egypt, this was the case. You go in and you dig up, um, you dig up a, a burial, and there'll be writings there on the, uh, like, you know, you guys may know about the um, the pyramid texts or some of these other writings that, that basically tell the story that the deceased will follow to make his way through the underworld, to get to the other side successfully. And so these these texts that are in the tombs and crypts are basically instructions. Like, hey, when you meet when you die, you're gonna meet this God, you gotta do this this thing, you gotta follow this path. Uh, the one that comes to my my mind immediately is about the um, about the scales. If you guys remember from ancient Egyptian mythology, there's the scales of justice, I think they're called, where when you die, you have to weigh your soul on the scales of justice against a feather. And if your uh, if the if the uh, soul is heavier than the feather, then you then you get you get consumed by the demons. You you know you don't get to go to heaven or go into the afterlife. That your soul has to be so pure that it's lighter than the feather. So there's that there's that story that pops in mind. But this was really common, and we have versions of this that are that are sufficiently ancient in Greece that are attributed to Orpheus, and. Um, that's really interesting because it's hard to fake that. It's hard to fake that. If I'm dying and I'm having my tomb, paying money or whatever to have my tomb uh, created and painted with all these, especially if I have the money to en- engrave these golden plates, that's super important. I'm not going to be making up the story I put there, put on there. I'm, it's going to be something that's significant to me and to the culture and worthy of being inscribed into gold and placed in my tomb to guide me to the afterlife. I can hardly think of something more important than that if I were a, you know, an ancient, an ancient Greek, let's say. All right, so let's talk about what we do have in terms of quotes and, and information about Orpheus. Uh, first one that I'll read to you comes from Plato, and it's interesting. Um, it, it comes from the Republic, and um, you know, again, hundreds of years after Orpheus would have lived, if he was actually a, a real person, um, 
and he's talking about threats uh, and, and of rewards and punishment in the the afterlife, in the world to come. So after you die, what happens? And there's a quote that Plato uh, references, and it says this. Um, again, this is attributed to Orpheus. It says, The just are given a life of feasting and everlasting drunkenness. The unjust are plunged into mud or made to carry water in sieves. Okay, interesting. So I just think I just think it's interesting to point out that even back in Plato's time and the story going back, this story here going back to an earlier period, so well into ancient Greek history or prehistory, you've got this belief in basically heaven and hell. And that's something that we... We tend to think about as Jewish or Christian in origin, and we talked about that before. There's not a lot of evidence that the idea of heaven and hell is Jewish in origin. It actually seems seems to be related more to the Zoroastrians uh, out in Persia that, that were the first people to ever really talk about heaven and hell and God and the devil in the way that we do in, in, in modern Christianity. So much of our beliefs were borrowed from this completely unrelated religion. This is kind of what it sounds like to me. But even so, we have Plato talking about a place where there's feasting and drunkenness forever, which reminds me of like Valhalla from from the Scandinavians, let's say. And then the unjust are just plunged into mud or made to carry water. So that that reminds me of like the uh, the not the Divine Comedy, but the um, uh, Paradise Lost, John Milton, where he's describing. Yeah, maybe I was right the first time. Maybe this was uh, this was Paradise. Or, um, uh, Dante, but in uh, in uh, in Dante, um, he says uh, he's describing the seven circles of hell, or however many circles there are, the different levels of hell going through uh, hell. And obviously, this is a medieval Christian book, but there's a, there's a story in it of a of a person who's pushing a rock up a hill, and then when they get to the top, the rock slips and rolls back down, and that soul has to go back down and push the rock back up the hill. Um, and there's all these different uh, stories like that of the way that sinners are suffering in hell. And that's what it reminds me of. Somebody plunged into the mud or forced to carry heavy water, let's say, that you're either going to be in bliss or you're going to be in suffering forever when you die. Very interesting to me that that idea is attributed to Orpheus and goes way back to prehistoric Greece before even the, you know, the, um, the Homeric poems. A uh, long way. All right, so there's another piece that is attributed to Orpheus, which is um, kind of a, an ancient saying, and it goes like this. God holds the beginning and end, and in the middle of all existing things. A couple things here, guys. We're, this is the ancient Greeks. The, we know they have lots of gods, but they say God holds the beginning and end, which I think is interesting. You've got a culture that believes in a pantheon of gods with all different attributes and powers, all different names that you're praying to and worshiping and sacrificing to. But, but this ancient, ancient saying is singular, God. Not many gods, but one God. And it says, holds the beginning and the end in the middle of all existing things. And so the idea here is that whatever it is that God is, is holding everything together, is allowing everything to exist the beginning, the end, and the middle. It holds it all together. It's hard to say whether they're talking about time or matter or something something that's more obscure, but the, the important thing is that God exists singular and that whatever it is is responsible for maintenance of the cosmos. And it reminds me of something from Hinduism where we, we talked about before, but in Hinduism they have, the, they have their own trinity. 
And it's Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Shiva's the destroyer, Brahma's the creator. Vishnu is the preserver. So there's something, some idea that God is the preserver, something that holds everything together. So this is what we're seeing here from, from Orpheus too. Uh, Plato also says uh, another quote here that's uh, attributed to um, Orpheus, which is interesting, and it's just a, a short quote that, that is given from the symposium, and it's, it just says, Ye uninitiated, close the doors. And here what I, what I want to point out is we're talking about initiates, and we're talking about closing the doors. What does that mean? That means keeping whatever the initiates are doing secret from the uninitiated. So the uninitiated is supposed to close the doors. They're not allowed in there. And so that's a reference to those mysteries that we talked about. And the Orphic mysteries are no, are no different. There were secret religious groups with secret knowledge or gnosis that was, that was imparted in this um, ritual way to these select group of people who were privileged to be able to take part in that. So, so again, that, that's evidence from Plato that, that there were mysteries like that surrounding Orpheus. Again, Plato, this is from Timaeus, from a different different book. Um, but there's a, a phrase here about the descendants of the gods, and that's what the that's what the Orphics called themselves. So these these initiates of the Orphic mysteries, they referred to themselves as descendants of the gods, like like they themselves were gods somehow. Well, you probably uh, can guess why I think that's interesting. Um, but they give the following account of the origin of the other gods, and it goes like this. The children of earth and heaven were ocean and, and oh boy, I'm going to mispronounce this, T-E-T-H-Y-S, uh, Tethys? Let's go with Tethys. It's probably wrong. I'm sure it's wrong. And from these came another name who I'll probably mispronounce, Forces, uh, Kronos and Rhea, and their contemporaries. And from Kronos and Rhea came Zeus and Hera and all those whom we know, uh, blah, 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 blah. So this is basically talking about the origin of the gods. And this is interesting because it's going to keep coming up. It's like what these pre-Socratic philosophers were talking about was the origin of the gods and of the cosmos. They're, they're talking about different ways to understand how the cosmos got here and the powers or forces that were involved, we'll call them gods, and how they've kind of painted this picture or, or tell the story that helps them to understand all of that. It's really interesting because we're going to continue to see it. And I'm going to read this again, and I want to give you some some other information that will that will show you the connections between this story and some of the others that we've talked about already. So when he says, the children of earth and heaven were ocean and tethys, what, do you, what, what the ocean is, is salt water, obviously. What tethys is in Greek is, is the goddess of fresh water, or the god of fresh water, I can't remember which. Now you guys may remember when we, when we were doing the Jordan Peterson episodes and we were talking about uh, the Mesopotamian, the ancient Mesopotamian uh, uh, creation story, the Enuma Elish. The same thing happened there, if you remember. The god of salt water, Tiamat, the god of fresh water, Apsu, those were the first two deities. And together, uh, they represented the Ouroboros, the, the, whatever, that, whatever that thing is that, that the cosmos was born from, whatever was there forever, the uncreated thing. So when he says the children of earth and heaven, he's talking about, um, you know, in, in really the same way that we um, that would commonly talk about heaven and earth. 
um, you know, like the heavens, the spiritual stuff, and earth, the material stuff, that those were the first two gods, whatever that means. And from those, from that dichotomy, heaven and earth, and you can remember, you can think about this like Tiamat and Apsu, just like we, we said a moment ago. If you consider those things together, you have the Ouroboros. You have that thing that, thing that Jordan Peterson refers to uh, from mythology as the, the matrix of being. So here, if you have heaven and earth considered together, then you've got the same thing. Um, and then when they're separated, and that happened by Marduk, by consciousness in the Mesopotamian story, uh, happened by Horus in the Egyptian story, if you guys remember the hero, that when heaven and earth are separated, that's where that's where um, uh, being comes from. That, that's what allows you know material reality to, to exist. So in this story, those are called uh, ocean and tethys, salt water and fresh water. And from them, um, from them, porces, which I looked up, which is forces. I don't know how to pronounce it. P H O R C Y S. They're basically the monsters of the deep. They're the things that exist in the waters, in the salt waters and the fresh waters that are unknown. They're the, and if you see pictures of them, they're like half man, half monster creatures, whatever those monsters are in the deep. And that reminds me of the unknown, you know, the great unknown from the, the, the way Jordan Peterson describes that the things you don't know, the things you haven't yet explored or experienced, that in your mind they're scary because you don't know what they are. It could be anything. They cause fear and awe, as Jordan said. And so that, that's what these monsters are. If you see them, that's what you feel, fear and awe. And you don't know what they are or what they mean. And from all of them comes Kronos, which is time, and Rhea, uh, Kronos' wife, which is fertility. And if you guys know anything about Greek mythology, Kronos and Rhea give birth to the Olympian gods, including Zeus, who becomes the king of the gods. So here's the story um, from... Orpheus about the creation of the cosmos and it begins with the separation of earth and heaven the salt water and the fresh water just like what we see in the Mesopotamian story and from there we get we get these three other forces um, the uh, the monsters of the deep time and fertility these three other gods and that reminds you of the trinity that that we've talked about of course from the christian perspective but also uh the way that jordan peterson talks about that trinity um you know the the um the gods that represent our experience the unknown the known and the knower that those things are always broken down into threes and that's what we see here and from that comes everything else. Every combination of everything else that, that comes from them that populates the, the world of our experience. Um, all right, so that's really, the, that's really the biggest piece that survives from Orpheus is this idea of, of taking a crack at explaining how, how, how something came from nothing, how the cosmos got here when there you know, potentially wasn't one before. And so that's the story not only of, of how the material reality got here, but also how the gods got here. It's interesting. So there's definitely a connection between material reality and God uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the Orphic mysteries. All right, so then we do see a quote from Aristotle, which is a little bit later, obviously, after Plato. And Aristotle says of Orpheus, he says, The theologoi uh, generate all things from night. And so this is a quote, again, from Orpheus. Theologoi uh, means, means the gods. So he's saying the gods generate all things from night. And in Greece, night was a goddess, a primordial goddess, Nyx, N-Y-X. Um, she's associated with chaos, 
So Nyx, the night, and the darkness are associated with chaos. Chaos is the primordial god, is the first god that appears in the Egyptian religion, or excuse me, in the Greek religion, and we'll talk about that in a bit when we get to when we get to Hesiod. But this is Aristotle way you know way after Hesiod, and he's saying uh, that the gods generate all things from night, and so you might just think of that as from chaos, and it's exactly, in fact, verbatim what we heard Jordan Peterson say in Maps of Meaning when he did, was discussing these early myths. All right, so there's another guy, uh, Damascus, uh, Damascius, uh, I think, who wrote a book called Theologia, and he attributed to Orpheus this. He said uh, that he gave night as the original element. We just talked about that, obviously. In the current Orphic Rhapsody, the theology is roughly as follows. Now, he's going to describe um, what what Plato described earlier, but he's going to do, you know, he's going to do his version of this. So it's clear that whatever Orpheus taught maybe was understood differently. It's like different translations of one book or something. There's, there's little details that change. So here's Damascus's um, version. It goes like this. For the one original element, time. For the two, ether and chaos. And in the place of being, the egg. This triad come first, and the second stage comes the egg fertilized as God. Okay, pump the brakes. Let's slow down here a bit. So this is really interesting. He says, for the one original element, time. So there's, there's something that's happening here where Orpheus is talking about, um, just like we heard from, uh, from Plato earlier, that there was one thing that started you know, the birth of the cosmos. It kind of all rolls back up to one thing. Now, whether that's heaven and earth together, the way that Plato might have said it, um, this particular inter- interpretation is saying time is that original one, that original wholeness. And then from there, it's split off into two things. Ether, which you might think of as space, like the cosmos, the, the space that everything exists in. And chaos. Chaos is like, you know, the god of potential, what, where things, you know, what, what matter and, and, and so forth can come from. So basically, you, you have these three things happening. Time, space, and potential. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if I can boil, if I can boil my experience down to, to anything less than that. That to me, that maybe that is a pretty good estimate of what you can boil things down to. Like we don't have experience, we don't have existence without time, space, and potential. Interesting. And these are all gods, obviously. Time is Kronos, uh, Ether, and Chaos. And then he goes on, he says, and in the place of being, the egg. Okay, so you have this first god before things are, are before there's ever anything else, that's time. And then time becomes these two other gods, so now you've got these three things happening. And then in the place of being, which is strange, it's like, look, where material reality should be, in its place, there's an egg. So we've got these three primordial gods that all sp- split off from this one original god, time, in this in this passage and in the place of being where it, wherever being is supposed to be is, is now an egg and he, then he says this triad come first okay interesting so I think it's interesting that we have a triad or a trinity here that appears at the beginning just in the same way we talked about a moment ago where Jordan Peterson describes in the mythological language chaos order and the divine son being this 
triad or trinity of, of our experience. But if we think about that from a psychological perspective, he says that the unknown, the known, and the knower. But in either case, these things break down to a trinity, to, to, a, to a, a division in threes, which I think is interesting. And then he says there's a second stage that comes where the, where the egg is fertilized as God. Okay. So that's amazing. It's amazingly mystical, by the way. But this is kind of the picture that I'm seeing. I'm seeing these sort of disembodied gods that are always there. Time and then space and potential that come from, from time or exist within time. And then there's this egg. Maybe they are the egg. And that's something that Jordan, that Jordan had, had, had mentioned. He called the pre-cosmogonic egg. That everything together is, is, you know, can be visualized or symbolized as sort of an egg. Um, and then, then Orpheus says, when the egg is fertilized, it becomes God. Something like that. It says that the second stage comes, the egg fertilized as God. So this is what I'm imagining. I'm imagining this egg that has these spirits in it, these gods in it, um, or, or, or God, the one God, you might say. Orpheus says the one original element. And what it's done is it's fertilized the egg. So you have the ghost in the machine. You have the spirit in the egg. That's what fertilizes the egg. That's what brings life out of it. In this case, that's what brings the cosmos out of it. Whew, boy. I just think that's really interesting. It's an interesting idea. It paints an interesting picture. But it also corresponds to the ancient Mesopotamian and the ancient Egyptian stories that we've already talked about. These most ancient stories about people trying to understand how things got here. And we're seeing this uh, from the words of Orpheus, from the mouth of Orpheus, sounding a whole lot like the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians that came before them. All right, the same guy, the same guy here, um, he gives another quote. He says, uh, he says, the Orphic Theogony given in Hieronymus. So this is a different version of the story we just read. So a third version. He says, it's not the same. It gives the first two elements as water and earth rather than as space and potential or ether and chaos. So you've got, the, again, the similar story, but it's using these different elements. And it says, The third element was begotten of these two and was a serpent having the head of a bull and of a lion and the face of a god in between. It had wings and was called Ageless Time or Unchanging Heracles. With him was United Necessity or adrasteria, an element having no body, and spread over the whole universe, fastening it together. All right, so this is interesting for a couple reasons. Obviously, the fact that there's a third version of this story is interesting. Not unheard of, and not, not something that really gives me much pause. I mean, you can even think about the uh, biblical stories that maybe you guys are familiar with, the um, creation of uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, that that story is is given twice in Genesis, in the first chapter and I think in the third chapter. In one story, uh, God creates Adam and Eve um, out of clay and you know breathes life into them both. And then in another story, God creates Adam and then creates Eve from Adam's rib. So clearly two very different stories. So it, it, again, this is what we're talking about here. Different ways of playing around with the same story. And in this one, it's interesting because it says... That the first two elements it gives are water and earth, which is something more similar to what Plato talked about, I think, when he said heaven and earth. Um, but in any case, water, like we've talked about before, is something that's 
very commonly, at least in, in uh, dream interpretation and things like that, very commonly, and, and, and interpretation of myth for that matter, very commonly it's representative of the unconscious. So the first element, water, is the unconscious or maybe the spirit, and that corresponds to the heaven part of, of you know Plato's version, you know heaven and earth. So water and earth in this case. So you've got this unconscious thing, this this spiritual element that they're calling water, and then earth, which is more you know, like down to earth. It's material. It's conscious. It's 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 you know something like you and me. So he's saying that those are the first two elements from this version: water and earth, the unconscious and the conscious. And it says the third element was begotten of these two, and it was a serpent. Okay, so I don't know how I can pass by this idea of a serpent without talking about the Ouroboros. Again, that's that's something that takes the form of, of a serpent or a dragon, something that Jordan called the dragon of chaos, but it appears in mythology at the very beginning, the Ouroboros, the, 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 the serpent swallowing its own tail, the yin and the yang. That That is what we're talking about. Okay, so it says... Um, that the serpent had a head of a bull and of a lion and the face of a god in between. Okay, so that's interesting. A serpent with a head of a bull and a lion and a face of a god in between. So when they say the face of a god, you know, of course the Greeks anthropomorphized their gods. They made them look like human beings. So this is what you have. You have a serpent with three heads, a bull, a lion, and a human. Uh, I don't know about you, but that makes me think of like the book of Revelations and the, the, all the language that you see in the book of Revelations about, you know, talking about the, the uh, apostles as though they had uh, the heads of animals or maybe going back to like the book of Ezekiel where, where you have creatures that are just like that um, with three different faces, th- you know, the head of an animal, the head of a man, the head of a different animal. That's very much directly out of the book of Ezekiel. Why is that important? It's important to me because what's being described is an image that's a therianthrope. We had a whole episode on those therianthropes and how they show up in religious uh, imagery, but they're half man and half nature. Uh, things like angels and sphinxes and, you know, uh, the goddess Nike from Greek religion or Apollo or Pan that has cloven hooves. You know what I mean? Half man, half animal, something like that. And that's what we're seeing here. And it's interesting because therianthropes, as far as I'm concerned, they go back to way before this. They go back deep, deep into ancient prehistory, way, way back into the Stone Age. And these images of therianthropes always seem to be representative of um, of the nature of man as part animal and part divine. That that's something like what we are. Um, and that's what we're seeing here with this, with this dragon, uh, this serpent here. Um, and then so Orpheus goes on, he says that that serpent was called Ageless Time or Unchanging Heracles. So Heracles or Hercules, he's a hero, right? He's, he's this cl- classical Greek hero. You know, he's like the, you know, he's the Christ figure of that time. He's the, he's the image that the people look to to understand what it is a hero is and to follow the path of the hero so that they know how to become one themselves. So to call this Unchanging Hercules... I find that to be super significant. Um, it, may, it may not sound obvious, but but unchanging Hercules means that the heroic instinct or the heroic spirit is always there. The spirit of Hercules is always there and unchanging. And that's exactly what Jordan 
said or took pains to try to explain in Maps of Meaning where he was saying, look, the thing that you read about in myths is Marduk or Horus. That, that thing is consciousness. That thing is what you are. That's the thing that has the power to put the other gods under, under its jurisdiction, under its leadership and control, can incorporate those instincts into your personality and then use them like tools and not to be possessed by them. And, and that will, will armor you and give you what you need to go into the unknown, face whatever dangers you have to face and bring from that the cosmos, you know, the known and, and Jordan describes that as the, the raw materials of building your own personality and also uh, your subjective world. So it builds you and it builds the world. And here Orpheus is saying that that is unchanging. The unchanging spirit of the hero that never goes away. It's exactly what Jordan said. It's exactly what Jordan said. And then he says that with him, so with this, this hero, this the thing I'm calling consciousness, with him is, is united necessity. And there's a name for the goddess of necessity, um, Adrastea, I believe. And he says that that goddess has no body and is spread over the whole universe and fastens it together. So you've got something like consciousness, and it's united with this thing that holds the world together. And we saw that earlier, the force that holds the world together. What, what was that again? He said it was God. So consciousness and God together hold the world together, preserve being in the cosmos. That's what Orpheus was saying. Unbelievable. I don't know how you can get any more mystic than that. To unify consciousness and God, that's exactly the definition of a, of a mystic experience. That's what we're seeing here. All right. So there's funeral inscriptions we talked about before that we see them in Greece, but we see them in Egypt as well, that guide the dead through the journey of the afterlife. And we talked about that already, but we see that in the Orphic Mysteries as well. And so here's some gold plates that were found in these tombs um, in Crete in Italy. Um, this one comes from T uh, Patilia, wherever that is. Uh, and it goes like this. You will find a spring on the left of the halls of Hades and beside it a white cypress growing. Do not even go near this spring, and you will find another from the lake of memory flowing forth with cold water. In front of it are guards. You must say, I am the child of, of Gaia and of starry uh, Uranus of heaven. This you yourself also know. I am dry with thirst and am perishing. Come, give me at once cold water flowing forth from the lake of memory and they themselves will give you to drink from the divine spring, and then thereafter you shall reign with the other heroes. So this is an inscription, again, in a burial place of somebody important, somebody who, who had the resources to have this carved in their tomb. And it's basically telling them, when you die, you're going to come to this place, and you have to follow the rules, you have to know what to do, you have to navigate the, the in-between place so that you can get to the other side. You have to navigate the halls of Hades. And it's, it's interesting. It's like, hey, you're going to see a tree. Like, really? I'm going to see a tree when I die? You're going to see a tree. Don't go to that. You're going to see a spring. Don't go to that. You're going to want to. You're going to want to drink. You're, you're thirsty and you're dying. You're going to feel like you want to drink. Don't do it. Keep going. You're going to find a lake. Drink from that lake. And you're going to encounter guards. And they're going to try to prevent you from drinking. And you have to tell them, I am the son of heaven and earth. 
and then they'll let you drink and you'll become a hero and you'll live forever in, in, in the underworld. Jesus. So the, it, it's very, very similar to the things that you see in Egypt, but I just think that's interesting. I am the child of heaven and earth. I am the child of spirit and matter. That's what you're telling. That's what you're telling the forces that guard the 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 you know the afterlife. It's amazing. And there's another one from a different place called Thori, and it goes like this. But whenever a soul leaves the light of the sun, enter on the right where one must, if one has kept all the laws well and truly. Rejoice at the experience. This you have never before experienced. You have become a god instead of a man. So, listen, that's as explicit as you can possibly be. Similar, similar passage here in a tomb where they're saying that you have to stay on the right and follow the sun. And, and you know, you, so you, got, you see something similar about how you're navigating the underworld. But what's, what's said here is like, look, while you're dying, pay attention. Enjoy the experience. It says rejoice at the experience which is an interesting way of saying it, but I think it's something that you could only agree with if you've had the mystic experience. But the idea is this. If, when you're dying and you're going, your soul is going from one world to the next, according to the, to the story, uh, Orpheus says, this is something you've never experienced before. So rejoice, experience it. And what, what, it, what it is that you're experiencing is that you're becoming a god. When you die, you just become a god. You leave behind the material, and you just and you just unite with whatever it is that's behind the veil. You become god instead of man, and that's connected to the mysteries, the Orphic mysteries. It's about it's about knowing how to die so that you don't die, and that's something that again. It goes right to the heart of the mystic experience. It reminds me of um, it reminds me of uh, that Morescu guy that that was just recently on. Um, we talked about him in the uh, the episode about uh, the sacred mushroom and the cross, but he was just on uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast with a uh, with a professor Carl Ruck talking about psychedelics and early religion, and uh, and that's something that he said. He said, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure, but he said that that one of those quotes that govern these mystery religions is. Um, you must die before you die so that you don't die when you die. Something like that. It's, it's the idea of um, having a mystic experience being something like dying or, or giving you practice at it so that when you do die, you can follow the, the path that Orpheus has laid out so that you can successfully get to whatever the, whatever the next world is, whatever that means. You know, the... the, the to, to, to get through it, you, you might say. All right, so that's Orpheus in a nutshell. And um, that's the oldest one, you know, the, 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 one of the seven sages that goes back the furthest, but there's a bunch of others. So we're going to talk about um, Epimenides, Epimenides from Crete. All right, so we don't know a lot about him other than that he lived in the 6th century or, or the 5th century, so a little bit after Orpheus, but right in the same time as most of these other people. He's one of the guys that's sometimes included in the list of the Seven Sages, but sometimes not. And there's not a whole lot that, that uh, 
survives from him, but there is some quotes about the Orphic cosmogony, which is what we just talked about, the way that Orpheus describes the universe coming into being or the cosmos coming into being. Um, Aristotle quotes this and he, he um, in his book Rhetoric, and it goes like this. He says, Epimenides gave his oracles not about the future, but on things in the past which were obscure. So he's not saying that Epimenides is a prophet the way that Orpheus was, but rather he's somebody that that elucidates or enlightens or provides information, a clarification about things that have happened in the past that people don't understand or remember anymore. He's putting a spin on those things to make them understandable again. And then uh, Damascius, who, who gave some quotes earlier, he talks about Epimenides as well. He says that Epimenides gave the first element as air and night. So again, whether we're talking about heaven or earth or water and earth, in this case, it's air or ether and night. And again, remember, night is the goddess Nyx, is associated with the goddess Chaos, the, the, the primordial goddess from the beginning. And he says, from which were created Tartarus, so the, the land of the dead, um, or the underworld, from which sprang two titans, and these have united, so it, these having united, produced the egg from which another generation sprang. So here we have another reference to this egg, this pre-cosmogonic egg that being erupts from. And we also see these, these uh, primordial gods in the beginning being a division of these two gods, uh, ether and night. So I don't know that it's significant which gods that they put in the, in the place. I think it probably is significant. I just don't know why. Um, but, it, it, you know, regardless... Um, those gods are going to all roll up into this goddess called Chaos, and we're going to see here shortly when Hesiod talks about it. All right, so then here's this this line, this last quote here, where he, he talks about the Dioscori. And first of all, I just have to point out, if anybody listen, uh, has, has read or watched the Twilight books, I'm pretty sure the Dioscori were, were used, were adopted by that, uh, by that author into the book. Um, like a like a a panel of old vampires or something, the Dioscori. But in any case, this this goes back to to ancient Greece as well. And and um, uh, again, Epimenides um, saying that this this came from Orpheus. Again, we don't have a lot that Orpheus uh, that that you know uh, that remains with very basically nothing. But here's something that um, that is attributed to him, and it goes like this: the Dioscori were male and female, one called Time as being a monad, the other called nature, as being a dyad. For, from the monad and the dyad, all numbers which produce life and soul have sprung. So this one's a little bit harder to read, it's a little bit more difficult, but I think that maybe it's maybe it's better than the others, because here, here what he's saying is that the Dioscori are one thing. And it it's agrees with something we saw earlier, which said that time was the first thing, was the one. And he says this, the one called time being a monad. A monad means one thing that's complete and self-contained. Like there's only one thing that's a monad. Um, so he's saying that, that, you know, time was this one thing and it was both male and female. And then it splits into a dyad, which is two things. And he's calling that nature. And then he says, from the monad and the dyad, so from time and nature springs 
all everything that's necessary for life and the soul. And it's funny because he says all numbers which produce life and have soul. So the idea that these numbers, uh, you know, what comes to my mind here is something we brought up earlier about how we were talking about infinity, how how numbers can go on, you know, infinitely, and every single number is a, is a unique digit. It's a unique number. One, two, three. They're all different. They're all the same, but they're all different. So there's something interesting there about uh, uh, referring referring it to numbers, saying that numbers produce life in, in the soul. But in any case, I think that the takeaway here is the idea that in the, in the beginning, the one thing, whether we call that chaos or time or whatever, that it was both male and female, just the way Jordan Peterson described um, the opposites together, right? That's the Ouroboros. That's the monad, as, uh, as Orpheus says here. And then it splits into nature. It splits into two. And that's the dyad. That's male and female separately. And from the combination of the one thing and the, and the two things come all of, of, of the other things, come all of the cosmos and of, and of the soul, apparently. So you can, see, you can see how there's logic and there's rationality to this, but you can see also how there's irrationality and all of the things that are common in mythology that, that, are, that are here that are not rational, that are not scientific, that are not, they're literary, they have literary value. And you can see how these people are trying to tell a story to explain this stuff. Um, it's very, very mystical. Everything rolling up into one God and being separated out into being. Um, and then the idea of consciousness and, and uh, God being one, like we've talked about. All of these things are stacking up in a really mystic direction. And that brings us to Hesiod. So Hesiod is super famous, you guys. Hesiod and Herodotus are basically the, the two most famous ancient Greek writers. Hesiod is the guy that wrote down the mythology for the first time, and uh, unless you count Homer. And, um, uh, and uh, Herodotus is the first guy to write down you know, the actual histories you know, of, of the Greek people and, and, uh, and all the wars and all that sort of stuff. So Hesiod's super important. Um, he dates back to the 8th century BC, so we're going, we're going way, way back with Hesiod here. And I, I, I mentioned before, but he wrote two books, uh, the, at least two books that survive. I think there was a couple others, uh, Theogony and Works and Days. And you can read both of those yourself for free on sacredtext.com. Um, and there were some other things that haven't survived. Uh, Astrologia and Astronomia. Both of those books we don't, we don't have anymore. All right, so here's um, a quote from the Theogony. It goes like this. And one day the deathless ones taught Hesiod glorious song while he was shepherding his lambs under holy Helicon. All right, Helicon's a mountain. So so the story basically begins where the gods have come to Hesiod to teach him this song. So it's like he's getting a revelation from the gods while he's out, you know, tending to his flock. That's the the image that you get. Um, It goes like this. So said the ready-voiced daughters of great Zeus, and they breathed into me a divine voice to celebrate things that shall be, and things there were aforetime. And they bade me sing of the race of the blessed gods that are eternally. Tell how at first gods and earth came to be, and rivers and the boundless sea with its raging swell, and the gleaming stars in the wide heaven above, 
and the gods who were born of them. Ye muses who dwell in the house of Olympus, and tell me which of them first came to be. So in the Theogony, he's basically saying that the gods are giving him this revelation, they're putting this voice into him, and he's going to be able to tell how everything came to be. And what's most important to him is which came first. And that's, what, that's when, he's, when he's talking about the ready-voiced daughters of great Zeus. He's talking about the muses. And, and again, the muses are the, the gods that inspire. And he says, Ye muses who dwell in the house of Olympus, tell me which of them first came to be. And then in Theogony, um, a little bit later, he says, Verily at the first chaos came to be. Okay, so this is straight back to the source, to the oldest, the oldest record of ancient Greek religion and their Genesis story. The buck stops with Hesiod in the 8th century, and Hesiod says, first came chaos. Exactly what Jordan Peterson said, exactly what the Mesopotamians said in the Enuma Elish, first came chaos, whatever that is. Now, in Works and Days, he's, there's a quote from Hesiod that I love. And it goes like this. It says, Or if you will, I will sum up another tale well and skillfully. And do you lay it up in your heart how the gods and mortal men sprang from one source? Let me read that again. How the gods and mortal men sprang from one source. All right, so what is that one source? Well, we just read it. The first thing that came to be was chaos. Chaos is the one source that gave birth to both men and the gods. So everything rolls up into chaos. All of creation and all of the gods, Zeus included, all of them roll up into chaos. Chaos is the one. All right, so... We're going to move off of Hesiod for a second. We're going to talk about somebody else, um, Pherecydides of Syros. Pherecydides, we're not really sure exactly when he lived, maybe the 7th or the 6th century BC, but right around the same time. Um, he was the first person, supposedly, that was writing not in poetry. He was the first person to write in prose. Um, and the book that he wrote was called The Severed Seven-Chambered Cosmos. So again, we're talking about these pre-Socratic philosophers, and what do they want to talk about? What, what, what won't they shut up about? The creation of the universe. That's all they want to talk about. They want to get to the bottom of it. It's the most important question, It's because it's the one that we don't have any answers to, and yet the evidence of it is all around us all the time. So, um, Phericides, okay, so he goes like this. He, he attributes, uh, or is attributed to him, rather, the following, Zeus and time existed always and Chthoni, which is the underworld. But Chthoni acquired the name Gaia, since Zeus gives earth to her as a gift of honor. So basically what he's saying is, Zeus, time, and earth always existed. Um, earth or the underworld, because he's equating the two. So the place where things can exist, that's always existed. Time, Kronos, that's always existed. And Zeus, which is the god of order, Right, he is, he's Apsu. He's, um, uh, you know, he he's the god of order, the god that represents the principle of order, opposite chaos. So you remember chaos, uh, the the goddess in this case, we're just going to call her chaos. Um, she's the opposite of order, 
and he's order is embodied here in in the god Zeus. So he's saying Zeus, the god of order, time and space have always existed. That's what he, that's what Phrygides uh, is saying. He goes on to say, Zeus, when about to create, changed into Eros, because by combining the cosmos out of opposites, he brought it into harmony and love, and sowed likeness and all, and unity extending through all things. All right, so that sentence is, packs a punch. So let's, let's unpack this. First of all, he says, when Zeus is about to create something, when the god of order is about to bring something new into being, it says he changes himself into Eros. Eros is the god of love. It's Cupid, actually. So imagine that. I know and the, the images you're probably seeing of Cupid in your head right now are all wrong, but you know, Cupid nonetheless. So Zeus changes himself into love before he creates things. What is that about? Well, it means a couple interesting things. It means to the Greeks, going way, way back, the most important god, the king of the gods, Zeus, could be equated with another god, a lesser god, Eros, and there's no problem with that. The Greeks are saying Zeus can become Eros, and Eros can become Zeus, and there's no, there's no problem with that. Well, it seems like there should be a problem with that. If we understand polytheism the way we think we do, if we, if we believe that these people thought these gods were all unique and different, um, that seems to be untrue. We can see here that um, uh, Phrysides, he very clearly says that Zeus changes into Eros before he creates something. So the gods really all roll up into one another. They're not different. And that's really important. The idea that the gods are interchangeable and that they roll up into one another um, that's really important because it kind of lead, it kind of points towards the idea of of monotheism or even of consciousness as being supreme. Um, and at least means that the gods are not considered are not really understood as separate things, even though that's how they tell all their stories. All right, what else? He says uh, be, he, the reason why Zeus becomes Eros is because by combining the cosmos out of opposites. He brought it into harmony and love. So Eros, of course, is the god of love. This, guys, this is so, in, so important. He says, he says that Zeus creates by combining the cosmos out of opposites. And I think what's meant here is exactly what I've said before and what I talked about Jordan Peterson saying before, is that God comes from one and is separated into being. So whatever God is, the oneness that we hear about in the mystic experience, the thing that Hesiod calls chaos, that that thing is separated into the, the universe. And that that is done, right? When you separate things, you're creating opposites. You're creating opposites. Opposites like good and bad, life and death. They're things that don't seem to go together. But this is what, this is what uh, he says, though. He says that, that when he creates them in love, that that he sowed likeness in all and unity extending through all things. So the idea that opposites attract comes to mind here. So God takes the one thing that, that it is, chaos, and breaks it up into separate things that are opposites. And those opposites attract. That's why Zeus becomes the god of love, because opposites attract and it brings them together. Interesting. And that's where, that's, that's where the unity of the cosmos comes from. 
And he says that he sowed likeness in all. It's like we recognize ourselves in one another. The same thing the Bible says when it says that God was created in the image, or man was created in the image of God. That's his likeness. And we see that here. Amazing. All right. All right, so the next guy we're going to talk about is um, Acasulius of Argos. Acasulius lived maybe in the 6th century. He also wrote a book about the origins of the gods and men. You see the scene, can you see the theme here? All of these important thinkers at the beginning of the Western tradition cannot stop asking the questions and trying to answer, where did men and, and, and the gods come from? Where did the cosmos come from? All right, so what did he have to say? He says this, chaos was the first principle, and after it the pair, Erebus, in the, uh, the male, and night, the female. From their union sprang the other gods. So here we have this very similar story. Chaos was the first principle. That was the one, the thing that, the thing that was there before being. And after it, the pair. So what happened to chaos? Chaos gets divided. Erebus, which is the darkness, the male, and night, uh, Nyx, the goddess Nyx, which is the female. So you can see the opposites, male and female. They used to be united in chaos. Now they're split. And from that, all the other gods come from. Amazing. Now, Plato also talks about um, Aeschylus. He, he agrees with Hesiod that chaos came first and after chaos, earth and eros. So you get another quote from Plato that's uh, very similar to what we just read, but a little different. He also says that the men of old lived for a thousand years. And that's just an aside, but I threw that in because it's important uh, in the sense that when you look at the biblical Old Testament and you see all the, you know, all the people that were supposed to have lived for thousands of years, you know, um, uh, what is it, Menelaic or something? I can't remember all the guys, but, but, but these people that were supposed to have lived for hundreds or thousands of years in their lifetime... You see the same thing in the um, the king's list, the antediluvians' king's list from Mesopotamia, where their, their kings were said to have lived for thousands of years. Here again in the uh, Greek, um, early Greek philosophy, the pre-Socratic philosophy, we have a similar a similar idea that the that the men of old, that these heroes of old, they lived for a long time. Again, I don't know why that's important. I just thought it was interesting that we see it here, so I wanted to share it with you. And that brings me to couple of other people whose names I enjoy. Um, Anaximander. Anaximander. Awesome name. Uh, Anaximander of Miletus. Okay, he was in his prime in the mid-500s BC. Not a whole lot are, are known about him. None of his works survived. Uh, but we have a couple of fragments, and this is how they go. The non-limited is the original material of existing things. Further, the source from which existing things derive their existence is also that to which they return at their destruction, according to necessity. I'm just going to keep reading because there's only a few others. This essential nature, whatever it is, of the non-limited is everlasting and ageless. The non-limited is immortal and indestructible. And that's it. That's it. That's all we have for Anaximander. But notice, Anaximander is concerned about the beginning of things. He's concerned about the matrix of being, where everything comes from. What is it? And his answer is the non-limited, the infinite, the thing that is not limited. That is the original thing, the material from which all other things came. That's the oneness, the chaos that Hesiod talked about. 
And he says it's the source from which existing things derive their existence. It's the thing from which existence derives its existence. That is the matrix of reality. He's saying that is something that he, he's going to call the non-limited because he, can, he knows nothing else about it. He can say nothing else about it other than that it is not like anything that exists. It's not limited by anything. Whatever that is, that's the original material of things. He says it's everlasting and ageless. It's immortal and indestructible. So when you think about God, those are all attributes that we would, we would attribute to God. Uh, everlasting, immortal, indestructible, eternal, that sort of thing. All right, that's Anaximander. Now we have another guy similar and an awesome name to pronounce, um, Anaximenes. Anaximenes. Oh boy. A-N-A-X-I-M-E-N-E-S. Try that. Try pronouncing that. Also from Miletus. And so Thales was also from Miletus. So we've got three of these pre-Socratic sages all coming from Miletus. Maybe there's something in the water there, you guys. All right, this guy wrote one book. And literally only one sentence has survived from the book. And I'm going to read it to you. As our soul, being air, holds us together, so do breath and air surround the whole universe. So this is a speculative thing. Obviously, a modern scientist can rip this apart. But listen to the, listen to the sentiment here. As our soul, which is air, and what, what they mean by that is it's ethereal and numinous. You know, numinous is a word, again, we, we hear that word with pneumatic, you know, the word pneumatic, air-powered, you know. This is a Greek word. That the soul was supposed to be numinous. It's something like air. It's not material. It's something else. This is what he means. He says, our soul being air, it's being numina, whatever that is, holds us together. And then he says, so do breath and air surround the whole universe. What he's saying is that whatever it is that our soul is, that imbues us with life and, and holds us together throughout the time that we exist, that, that makes us a, uh, you know, a continua- continual consciousness, that whatever that is, it also surrounds the whole universe and holds it together. So the thing that makes the universe work and tick and exist, that's the same thing that makes you work and tick and exist. That, that's the thing that he's calling soul. Okay, so what's the message here, you guys? Out of the one sentence that remains from this guy, we can see that what he believed was that the thing that animates us, our soul, is also the thing that animates the cosmos. That's God. Unbelievable. So the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, were a mystic bunch. I love it. And I just have to point out that all of this mystic stuff that we're talking about, that some of you guys may think is fooey, but if you have a mystic experience, you'll, you'll, you'll change your tune, that all of this stuff is at the bedrock. It's at the absolute beginning of the Western tradition, of all of the philosophy and science that came out of Plato and Aristotle. All of that is based on all of this mystic stuff about trying to understand the cosmos and where we come from. I just want to point that out. This is at the actual root of all of it. Nietzsche, Kant, you know, Francis Bacon, all of those guys. John, John Paul Sartre, all of them. All of the greatest minds uh, that have existed. This is the foundation of that tradition. Unbelievable. Xenophanes. We're going to talk about Xenophanes. Another awesome name to say. 
uh, Xenophanes. All right, so he lived a little bit later in the uh, 500 BC. We have a little bit more on him, um, so let's get into it. And once they say, passing by when a puppy was being beaten, he pitied it and spoke as follows, stop, cease your beating because this is really the soul of a man who was my friend. I recognized it as I heard it cry aloud. All right, so this is just a story, obviously, of Xenophanes saying to somebody beating a dog, hey, stop beating the dog. The soul that's in that dog used to be my, my, my friend. I recognized it was my friend when I heard the dog crying. That's what he's saying. So this doesn't exactly go with the theme, but I wanted to bring it to you because it's evidence going way back in the Western world of an idea of reincarnation. Maybe not exactly like a Buddhist-style reincarnation, but you can see that this ancient philosopher believed it was possible that whatever was animated the dog, the soul of the dog, that could have actually been, you know, belonging to a human being. Like the soul was recycled, or that the life force uh, was recycled, or that the soul is immortal, um, and that there's not a difference between the thing that makes an animal alive and the thing that makes a man alive, which is something that religious people argue about, that, that, that animals don't have consciousness or don't have a soul or, or not the same level. You know, back, back in ancient Greece, they, they didn't have that debate. This guy is saying, no, this, this, this pitied dog uh, getting beaten uh, has the soul of, of, of my friend. So there's this idea of, of reincarnation or the immortality of the soul or maybe something like, like Newton said, that uh, energy cannot be created or destroyed but only transformed, that something like that was already known in terms of the soul and the, and the immortality of the soul in ancient Greece. Um, okay, and of course, you know, the, the Buddha, as we talked about, um, you know, he's, he's basically existing right around the same time as these guys. Interesting. All right, what else we got? Uh, here we go. But mortals believe the gods to be created by birth and to have their own mortals' raiment, voice, and body. But if oxen and horses and lions had hands or could draw with hands and create works of art like those made by men, Horses would draw pictures of gods like horses, and oxen of gods like oxen, and they would make they would make the bodies of their gods in accordance with the form that each species itself possesses. Ethiopians have gods with snub noses and black hair. Thracians have gods with gray eyes and red hair. Whew, okay, so this is interesting. This is interesting. Um, he's saying, look, if, if animals could, could were like humans and they could make make a image of their gods, that their gods would look like them. And you can see that because you you know you look at the the you know like black folks in Ethiopia, they make their gods black, and the Thracians uh, from Thrace they make their gods look Thracian. So so he you know he makes a really interesting point here, which is something that you see also in the biblical tradition, which is the idea about not making graven images or the idea that. The images that you're creating are idols, and they don't really represent what God is. That what God is can't be represented, or at least can't be captured in a representation. That anything that you represent as God is going to be some, in some way phony. It's in some way not, not enough. And it reminds me of Taoism. And remember, Lao Tzu, who founded Taoism, he existed at right around the same time. And he said, he said that the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. So the moment you put a, a name to it, the moment you put a representation on it to try to, to try to, 
you know, harness or house the, the you know, or, or contain the idea of God, you're, you're, you're going to fail, you're going to inevitably fail. I just think that's very interesting. We see it here. We see it here as well. All right, here's where it gets really good in my opinion. He says, There is one God among gods and men, the greatest, not all like mortals in body or in mind. He sees as a whole, thinks as a whole, and hears as a whole. But without toil, he sets everything in motion by the thought of his mind. Jesus, that's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, you got this. You got this point here about without toil, he sets everything in motion, which reminds me of Taoism again. It's like action by inaction, doing by doing nothing. That's something we hear about in Taoism. He's saying, without toil, he sets everything in motion. It's it's the idea of not resisting. Something that you see in the mystic experience, um, which I've been reluctant to talk about, but I'll just mention here is this this idea of a of a bad trip that sometimes you'll hear from like a psychedelic type of mystic experience where, where people will come back and say that I couldn't help but resist that the message of that experience was stop resisting and go with it, go with the flow. Um, and, and by resisting, you create this bad experience for yourself that you have to learn to release and let go and go with it and trust it to, to have a good experience. And that seems to be that, that the inaction that the, Taoism, that the Taoists are talking about, and it seems to be the same thing that we're talking about here. Without toil, he sets everything in motion by the thought of his mind. Okay, so I'm going to start at the beginning where he says there is one God among the gods who is the greatest of them all and is not like mortals in body or mind. So all these other gods are considered to be, you know, they're statues of them. They look like human beings. They, they you know, they, they look something like human beings. Um, but there's one God that's not like that. He says there's one God that's the greatest of them all that's not like that. He sees as a whole. He thinks as a whole. He hears as a whole. And what that, what that's telling me is something like this. There's this idea that consciousness, this is a mystic idea, but it's, there's this idea that, that consciousness is the one thing, the chaos, the, the, all that there actually is. And it's something that we experience as fractured and existing in, in you know, uh, two billion people on the planet and all the other things that are alive, if, you know, if we don't extend it to the things that aren't alive. That, um, that what we have here is consciousness that's one thing but it's existing fractured in a, in a billion different minds. So this, so this God that's not like anything else, that thinks as a whole and sees as a whole and hears as a whole, you might imagine if all of the conscious creatures that exist could experience the consciousness of everything else all at once. That's not something that we can make any sense of. And if you try to, you know... you'll fail. But you can imagine that mind of of all the consciousness were combined into one thing. That mind is something that sees as a whole. Something that thinks as a whole. Hears as a whole. That, That oneness, everything combined back into one, he's saying that is the greatest of the gods. That's, that's the thing that set everything into motion without even trying. All by thinking in, in its mind. And again, this idea of psyche, this idea of representation and projection that we've been talking about throughout all of these podcasts so far, 
has something to do with mind. And, and it, it reminds me of something I wrote down after a personal mystic experience. Uh, in fact, it may have been my very first one, where I said something like, something like that reality is God's dream. And what I, what I meant by that was that reality exists in the mind of God, whatever that means, that it's a psychic phenomenon, that it's, that it's something that exists in psyche. And here, this, this is what we read. But without toil, he sets everything in motion by the thought of his mind. And then the last one I have here is, we all have our origin from earth and water. For everything comes from earth and everything goes back to earth at last. All things that come into being and grow are earth and water. And here's why, here's why I find this interesting. So you remember some of these philosophers earlier were talking about the cosmos being created from earth and water, that those were the, the, fir, the, the first two uh, gods that were separated from the original one god, from, the, from chaos. That it could be heaven and earth, or, or earth and water, consciousness and unconsciousness. And what, what he's saying is that we, individual human beings, that we have our origins from earth and water. The same way that these other philosophers said that the cosmos had its origins in earth and water. So what that means is the cosmos was formed in exactly the same way as you and I. And there's a way in which we can say that the cosmos and you and I are not, not any different. And the process that created us is the same process. And that's chaos. All right, now this brings us to the last guy that we're going to talk about today. His name is Heraclitus. I really like Heraclitus. Uh, I, I read about him a little bit before um, preparing for today. If anybody's heard of Heraclitus, you've probably heard one quote from him, which is um, interesting. It is that you, that you can't step into the same river twice. That, that, that's kind of the quote that gets attributed to Heraclitus. And the idea is that, uh, you know, even if you wake up every morning and you step into the same river behind your house every day that's, that's been there every day of your life, uh, that every time you step into it, it's a different river. It's different water. It's moved a little. You know, it's not, it's not exactly the same river. Um, so that's, that's the famous quote that gets attributed to Heraclitus. But there's all kinds of interesting stuff here. Um, he, he wrote only one book, and there's a bit of it that survives. And what surprised me was hearing a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff from Heraclitus that is both good and bad about the mystery religions. And we started originally talking about Orpheus, and we know that these mystery religions, like the Orphic uh, mysteries, had something to do with dying before you die. It had something to do with um, with practicing death with with unifying yourself with chaos and that there were some rites and rituals there that would help you to come to that realization or have that experience and they were all secret okay so i'm going to start reading these to you i'll do my best here he says night ramblers magicians bacchants mandids and mystics the rites accepted by mankind in the mysteries are an unholy performance all right, so the magicians that he's talking about, I'm not sure who the night ramblers are, 
Uh, all that sounds like a cool name for a for a biker gang or a band or something, but the magicians those are the magi. Those those are that's where we get the word magician from. You know we we know who the magi are in the Bible. They're the Persian priests of the of the Zoroastrian religion. So in, in this case, we even see these Zoroastrians as being lumped in to these mystery religions. And then it says Bacchus, and then Bacchus, of course, is the is also called Dionysus, uh, but but that was another mystery religion where people would drink of the vine. That you know, the Bacchus and Dionysus was the god of intoxication, so they would go and they would drink wine and have these secret drunken rites. Um, he's saying in the beginning that these mysteries are an unholy performance, which I find to be interesting. And you're going to see as we go through here, he's basically saying that these mystery religions are people that are doing that are he's calling them night ramblers and magicians so it kind of seems like uh, like they're they're negative connotations to those words already then he says that what they're doing behind closed doors is unholy so he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of good things to say about these mystery religions however he does seem to know quite a lot about them so i wonder what that means uh here's what i mean he goes on um, if it were not in honor of Dionysus that they conducted the procession and sang the hymn to the male organ, their activity would be completely shameless. But Hades is the same as Dionysus, in whose honor they rave and perform the Bacchic revels. So what's interesting to me here is that, well, a couple of things. He says that Hades is the same as Dionysus. Okay, so here we have another example. Earlier it was Zeus turning into Eros so that he can create something. Here we, 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 hear, uh, we hear Hades being spoken of as the same as Dionysus. Now remember, Hades is the god of death. Dionysus is the god of intoxication. And he's saying that those gods are the same. So again, you have this interesting theme going through ancient Greece across hundreds of years of period, period coming out of the mouth of different philosophers who are saying the same thing that we just heard earlier, that these gods are interchangeable, that whatever it is we think about, these gods, whatever they are, is something that is the same among them all, in such a way that we can talk about them interchangeably. Hades is the same as Dionysus, he says. The other thing he says is that um, that in honor uh, in the honor of Dionysus, that that these mysteries um, these mysteries these rites are being conducted, and he says that it's um, the hymn of the male organ, literally the uh, the phallic hymn. So whatever they were doing in this Dionysian mysteries had to do with intoxication, and it had to do with fertility. Um, the fact that they were singing a hymn to the penis, you know, is I mean I don't know what was happening behind those closed doors, but I would like to be a fly on the wall, you might say. There's probably some orgies going on and, or something going on there uh, along those lines. Then he goes on later on, he says, the mixed drink, kaikion, is a mixture of wine, grated cheese, and barley meal. He says it separates if it is not stirred. So why do I bring that to your attention? So this is a guy who said that the, that the Bacchus and Dionysus mystery rituals are unholy. And the people that do them are night ramblers and magicians. Yet, yet, he knows what, what they do behind closed doors. They do, they, they're, they're doing this hymn, this phallic hymn. And they're drinking something called kaikion. This is one of those potentially psychedelic brews that we talked about before that they would have taken behind closed doors when they had these crazy, um, uh, you know, rites. 
And he happens to know that if you don't stir the kaikion, that it that it, it the pieces separate. So you have to stir it really well so that you can drink it. What I'm saying here, guys, is that this person who seems to be talking very negatively about these mystery religions seems very obviously to be a member himself, or maybe was one once upon a time, because he knows he knows that if you don't mix the drink, it, that it separates. This is a guy that's mixed the drink before. This is a guy that's drank the drink before. All right, he goes on to say, The Lord whose oracle is at Delphi neither speaks nor conceals, but indicates. All right, so you guys remember Delphi, the oracle of Delphi, is actually at the temple of Apollo. Apollo is the messenger of the gods. Okay, so he says the Lord whose oracle is at Delphi, he's talking about Apollo. He, spe- he says he doesn't speak and he doesn't conceal. He doesn't tell you something. He doesn't keep information from you. He indicates. Now remember, Apollo is the messenger of the gods. He's the force that, that brings wisdom or knowledge from the unconscious, from the other world, into being, into your mind. And when he says he indicates, this is what, this is what it makes me think of. You guys remember when Kyle and I talked before about the mystic experience and how there are definitely powerful components of it that seem like you're getting information from this other realm that you're experiencing when you're when you're in the throes of the mystic experience um, and it's not random it seems very meaningful very intentional and um, and if you think about it it's not something that is obvious so like you see these you know maybe they're visual images or emotions or both and you don't they don't have a lot of rational sense or or any rational sense but if you go to if you start thinking about them afterwards what you find is that they have connections to other thoughts and things in your mind that if you think about it long enough starts to make sense to you and it's so it seems like whatever experience you had in the mystic experience actually does mean something that's valuable to you in the real world in your in your you know sober reality but it's not something that is screamed out to you. It's something that has to be sort of deduced from the experience. And this is what I think is he's, he's saying here. He's saying the, the Lord whose oracle is at Delphi, he doesn't speak or conceal. He indicates. So he's going to give you something that you can use to work out something valuable. He's not going to hand it to you wrapped up in a bow, and he's not going to keep it from you. He's going to, he's going to show you something, and you're going to be able to, to, to derive meaning from that. And to me, that is, that is so spot on to, to the mystic experience that it's just another piece of evidence that these mystery religions were some in some way or other um, a ritual to do with having these mystic experiences. Whether they're psychedelic or not, I, I can't say for sure, but there's a good chance. All right, so he goes on. He says, All that we see when we have waked is death, and all that we see while slumbering is sleep. That's interesting. It's like you're waking life, all you're seeing is death. Not exactly sure what that means. If it means that all the things you see are going to die, if it means that that the reality that you see while you're awake isn't exactly reflecting what's real, but but something that's static or 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 dead. I don't exactly know what that means, but I just wanted to bring that one to you as well. And then and the last one in this uh, in this vein, he says there await men after they are dead, things which they do not expect or imagine. And that, to me, that's the, 
that's the cherry on top. Um, you can't say negative things about the mystery religions and the people that do the mystery religions and then turn around and say that there await, that there await men after they are dead things which they do not expect and can't imagine. So that's something that basically says whoever wrote this has died and knows what, to, what you're going to encounter when you die. So how can that happen if you're alive? If you're alive to write that, how could you have been dead to know what to know what you're going to expect? Well, that is the mystic experience. That is the is the the mystery religion, the rituals of the mystery religion. They allow you to die before you die. They allow you to see what's behind the veil. And again, that is a I could not be a more more of a mystic thing to say. But we're about to get we're about to get even more mystical, you guys. So Heraclitus, he starts talking about things now. Now that you, now that it's pretty obvious to me that he's done, he's been a member of the mystic uh, of the mystery religions, and he's had a mystic experience. I completely, one hundred percent, believe that uh, that you know that that to be the case. He's convinced me of that so far. If he hasn't convinced you, he's about to. So here's a bunch of other of other quotes that I want to read to you. Maybe all at once. I may stop and talk a little bit, but here we go. He says, This ordered universe, the cosmos, which is the same for all, was not created by any one of the gods or of mankind, but it was ever and is and shall be ever-living fire, kindled in measure and quenched in measure. Okay. couple of things. He says that the universe is the same for everyone. Which is, which is another way of saying that the universe is one. And that's important. It's going to become important. And he said it wasn't created by any one God or mankind, but that it is an ever-living fire. Now, fire is something in the, in the ancient Greek world um, that was considered ethereal. It was considered spiritual. It's not exactly material. You can pass your fingers right through it. But it is hot. It will cook your food. It will burn you. You know, it, it's both, it exists in the material world and in the numinous world. It's sort of something like that. And so for that reason, uh, and, and the fact that it eventually dies, you know, you can't keep a fire going forever, that the ancient Greeks believed that whatever it was that animated um, whatever it is that animated living creatures, human beings, was like that. So the soul was considered to be fire. And you can actually see that in the, in the Muslim tradition. I mentioned before, but the, in the Muslim tradition, human beings were made from, from earth, from clay, just like, just like we see in the Bible. But the angels were made from fire, right? So the angels are spiritual creatures. They're made from fire. Um, and again, you know, if, as, just as a fire burns out, human beings lives burn out and we die. Just as a fire, a new fire can be kindled from a, from an old fire, a human being can have, give birth to a new human being. So there's, there's these connection here um, about, uh, well, about the universe being one because he says it's the same for everyone. And then, um, and then that whatever it is that created um, the cosmos, whatever it is that's behind both gods and man, that is the ever-living fire. It's this eternal thing that they're calling fire. And, that, and it's, again, associated with the spirit or the soul. All right, here we go. He says, That which alone is wise is one. It is willing and unwilling to be called by the name of Zeus. So here, here we're going to start talking about the oneness. 
the oneness that, that comes through the mystic experience like dynamite. That's, that's the one unshakable part of the mystic experience. We're just going to start laying it on. And he says something interesting. He's saying that that oneness is both willing and unwilling to be called by the name of Zeus. So whatever it is uh, that is the oneness, it's something that we can call Zeus, the king of the gods. But it kind of is and it's not Zeus. You know, it's more like the chaos, the oneness that we talked about, that Hesiod talked about and some of the others talked about. It's something more like that. But it is true to call it the king of the gods. And that's why he's saying that it's it's willing to be called Zeus, even though it's not exactly. So we're just going to keep going. I'm going to push through. Now, keep that oneness in in your mind. That which is wise is one. To understand the purpose which steers all three... Let me start over. That which is wise is one. To understand the purpose which steers all things through all things. So when you have listened, not to me, but, but to the Logos, it is, a, it is wise to agree that all things are one. Hesiod is the teacher of very many. He who did not understand day and night, for they are one. Here's, an, here's another one. The way, straight and crooked, is one and the same. The way up and down is one and the same. Immortals and mortal, excuse me, immortals are mortal. Mortals are immortal. Each lives the death of the other and dies their life. God is day, night, winter, summer, war, peace, satiety, famine. But he changes like fire, which when it mingles with the smoke of incense is named according to each man's pleasure. And that, excuse me, and what is in us is the same thing, living and dead, awake and sleeping, as well as young and old, for the later of each pair of opposites having changed becomes the former, and this again having changed becomes the latter. All right, so it has a whole bunch of different um, fragments, but what you what you notice if you if you pay attention is all of these returns to the idea of oneness where, and, and of opposites being united into oneness. He's like, look, the one, who is, the one who is wise is one. He says, um, he says that the wise agrees that all things are one. And he said, he said, Hesiod, who taught very many people, didn't realize that day and night are one. And then he says the way, the way of being, straight or crooked, up or down, those are one. Then he says the mortals and immortals, they're one. And then he says what God is, is are these opposites united? God is day, night, winter, summer, war, peace. He's He's these opposites united, but he changes like fire, he says. Um... And then he says, what is in us is the same thing. So the oneness, the thing that God is, the opposites united, that they're the thing that's in us as well. All of that rolls up into the one, into into God. And God is the opposites united, the Ouroboros. Another thing Heraclitus says is that when he... When he searched for wisdom, like all this stuff we're talking about in, in, in terms of uh, the oneness, he says, I searched into myself. So where that knowledge came from was from consciousness. Uh, last thing he says is, 
beginning and end are general in the circumference of the circle. And, and the point he's making there is that the circle is an image of the oneness. Like we've talked about before, the round, the circle, the oneness, the Ouroboros, the serpent swallowing its tail, the yin-yang, all of this. All of these circular things, they represent something which has no beginning and no end. And that's, and that's, a, and that's a symbol of the cosmos, or, or of God, of the matrix of being, of chaos. Something that has no beginning and no end, but is eternal. It's the, it's the unification of all opposites. And here's the thing. Every spot on that circle is exactly the same distance from the middle. And it's, and you know what I mean? Every spot on that circle, every point on that circle is exactly the same. And what, and what Heraclitus says here is beginning and end are general in the circumference of a circle. That, that consciousness, the oneness, the circle... And all of, all of the individual conscious creatures like you and I, and Heraclitus himself, that were all in reference to the circle, in reference to God, exactly the same. That, that sameness, I think that is the oneness that the mystic experience entails. Um, that's what it communicates, and that's what all of these ancient Greek philosophers have been saying. That consciousness and God are exactly the same thing. It's you and me. So the the Greeks were just as mystic as anybody else, just as just as mystic as the Eastern religions we've talked about, just as mystic as mystic as the you know early Jewish and, and Christian uh, um, you know themes that we that we've talked about already. And again, just to remind you that all of that may very well have been a tradition from these mystery religions that's rooted in a mystic experience that may very well have been a psychedelic one. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's at the very the very bedrock of the entire Western tradition, of everything we, we think we know and believe about empirical science, about objective reality, that all of that rests on Heraclitus and Hesiod and Apollodorus and Homer and all these people that said that consciousness and God are one. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.